Gary Piggold is one of the true characters of rock and rolldom and a Canuck to boot. He's logged years in the music industry as a musician, producer, manager, and journalist, and is the brains behind the pioneering music fanzine The Pig Paper. In that mag's pages and elsewhere, Gary perfected a classic fanzine writing style that's equal parts passion, knowledge, and put on. His memoir-worthy life is an object lesson on the contentment that's possible with an easygoing, I'm up for that attitude. Please enjoy this chat with the freewheeling, heroic Gary Piggold. Thanks in advance for listening. If you like what you hear, please help us reach more impressionable ears by telling a friend and leaving a review or a rating. You can connect with us on Twitter at RockCritPod. I don't know how long it's been up, but there's an all-music entry about you that describes you as rock music's hardest working man. How chuffed are <clears> you <throat> to see that? How did that even come about? I can't remember his name, but that was someone who contacted me online very early days of computers, and he was um, interested in a band I was producing, writing for, and actually playing in called the Ghost Rockets, which back in those days was called Alternative Country, I guess. You know, I'm not a big fan of pigeonholes, but he just contacted me that way. And they're not, there weren't too many of us online in those days, so it was all like brand new discovery, and all music was just being put together. We're talking earlier, mid-90s, I think. He just contacted me that way, and then um, I'm not sure which page, because I know he put a Ghost Rockets um, entry on all music, and then he actually you know, spread off into me and Dave Rave and all these other things I was, I was doing at the time. Your career has been all over the place, music-wise. Is it safe to say you've managed to eke out a living from music, doing what you love? Yes. I have not had a day job since 1979, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing in 79? Oh, well, actually, I was um, preparing to move to California, and I needed some money. Someone who had helped me print the pig paper up at the time and I just worked night shift, like midnight to 6 a.m., stacking, you know, cookbooks and whatever, flyers, and worked in, uh, like, a, the back of a printing plant. Beca- just because, you know, I, I needed some money, like, fast. And so as was... soon as I had enough money, I got in a plane, went to Los Angeles. And that was, like, the closest last thing you had to, like, a straight job. Yeah, I've just been too busy to, to have a job, I guess you could say. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm going to have to ask you your secret. I'll tell you the secret. I yeah, got yeah, it from please. Nick Lowe. He said, keep it as a hobby. If you go into this or any other creative field with the goal to make a lot of money, it's probably not going to happen or you're going to get frustrated or it's going to turn into work. And as my dad, who was a musician back way back in the day, he just said, there's a reason why you play music. They call it you play. You don't work. So as long as you keep it as a hobby, the money comes along. And in my case, it just happens to come along. That's not my goal. But as I said, I've managed to always have enough to go day by day. Can you tell us about your dad a bit? What kind of music? Yeah, my dad was, um, we're going way back to like the big band days, like the late 1930s. And he wanted to be a drummer. And you would maybe know if it's still around. There was a place right on the lakeshore almost in Toronto, called the Palais Royale. It's a big dance hall right on the lake. And that was where the Glenn Millers and many Goodmans, et cetera, would, would play when they came through, you know, this area, this part mm-hmm. of the world. My dad, this, which I thought is brilliant, he would go to the gigs in the afternoons, which would be called sound checks now. And he would have his drumsticks in his back pocket. In those days, of course, you traveled by bus, the buses weren't heated. You'd usually get in the bus after your gig the night before, and you'd drive overnight to, say, the Palais in Toronto. The drummers would usually be, you know, soaked 
they were wearing their stage clothes. They would always get sick on these unheated buses. My dad would show up at, at the Palais any time a cool band came through town, and he'd go up to the drummer and go, hey, do you need the night off? And he'd go, yeah, you know, I sleep in the bus, you know, catch up, you know, wrap myself in a blanket. And those bands in those days, they had all the basic, the same repertoire, right? Mm-hmm. And a drummer didn't know the, have to know the key, just have to know the count off and way he'd go. So that was how he was trying to get in the music business. But unfortunately, World War II came along, so he got sidelined. Oh, but wow. um, to flash forward to my early days, when I first saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, like so countless other people my age, I just pointed at the screen and said, that's what I want to do. And I remember the next day, you know, I had one of my dad's old tennis rackets. I was pretending I was, it, was, it turned out to be John Lennon, but I wanted to be him. So most people in those days, the parents were not encouraging for that kind of stuff, but I got lucky. They said, well, if you're really serious about it, we'll get you a guitar. As long as, and this was their mantra all during my school years, as long as it doesn't affect your grades. You know, you can have your little basement groups and whatever. So So I got lucky that way. And my mother also, right up until, she passed away a couple of years ago, but right up until her mid-80s, she was singing in the Mississauga Choral Society until she physically could not stand through the performances anymore because she was so old and frail. So I grew up in a musical house, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was very lucky. They supported me all, you know, through that. And they they bought me, right? They drew their line at the Rolling Stones, but everyone else, you know, they said, here's your Beatles records, here's your Monkees records. And they were very, I was very lucky. I wonder, what did they think of your first band, Pornographic Cornflake? Oh, you, you've done your research. <laughs> uh, my dad was picking me up from rehearsal uh, on a Saturday afternoon, and he said, um, you know, how did it go? And I go, oh, we got a name for, for our band. It's Pornographic Cornflake. And he sort of, <laughs> you know, gave me the stink eye, and I didn't know what it meant. It was words I got from I'm the Walrus. Yeah. I didn't know what they meant. I found out later. <laughs> that, would, say- that would have been, I guess, my first real band. Not that I think we did one or two shows in people's backyards. This would have been 1968, 1969. And I had an acoustic guitar and a cassette tape recorder. And I had the microphone in, this, in the sound hole of the acoustic guitar. I pressed record and pause on the cassette recorder. And my guitar was being amplified through the little speaker in the cassette recorder, and that was high-tech in those days. Wow, yeah, that sounds like a, maybe for the time, a sophisticated setup. It was. Again, I didn't know what I was doing, but I just experimented, and that worked. Until the drummer started playing, then, of course, I was drowned out. But <laughs> <laughs> What did you guys sound like? We were three-piece, because that was the cool thing at the time, Jimi Hendrix experience, Cream, etc. So it was power trio, I guess you'd call it, but we had no power whatsoever. Is every trio just called a power trio just because that's, even if they're not powerful, is it? Is that just like... I guess. Uh, the the thing is to get, to get um, scholarly here. Um, my theory is when things pared down to like three pieces, the guy who usually got the heave-ho was the rhythm guitar player. Mm-hmm. The rhythm guitar player usually was the songwriter in these bands. And that's my theory on why, as the 60s progressed, there is an ever-widening gap between pop music and rock music, as it, you know, to get pigeonholy again. Mm-hmm. So we would have fallen into the rock category. We were trying to play uh, 
Summertime Blues, the Blue Cheer version. In fact, if you go on YouTube, put in Gary Blue Cheer, you'll see a little video I made for a documentary on Blue Cheer talking about exactly this, you know, oh, trying amazing. to learn how to play that. And my other big solo was uh, In Agata de Vida, you know, the Iron Butterfly song? Oh, absolutely. Okay, well, everyone knew that song because you could stretch it out to 20 or 30 minutes. Easily. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember playing the guitar solo using a nail clipper as a slide. So Lovely. again, like my whole life, I didn't know what I was doing, but I just tried to figure something out. That sounds inspired, Gary. I wish I had recordings. Though Again, we take for granted everything can be easily like archived nowadays, but not in those days. Yeah. And this would have been... So Port Credit, Ontario, Mississauga. Can you describe that for listeners who may not be familiar with that area? Yeah, Port Credit um, is right on the waterfront, right on Lake Ontario, and it's strategically placed you know, between Toronto and Hamilton. The little rivalries that pop up every now and again between Toronto and Hamilton, musically speaking, I could always be Switzerland. I was neutral. So I had friends <laughs> and bands on, on both sides of that divide. So when punk rock, for example, came along, you know, there was Teenage Head, there was the Rebels, there was Simply Saucer, but then there was the, you know, the Vile Tones, Diodes, etc. in Toronto. And it was like, I guess, 20 years before the Rap Wars, you know, the East-West Coast thing. We had our own little rivalries in those days. But I was always neutral. You know, I, I was in the middle. So I said, oh, I'm from Port Credit. So I could, uh, I fit in everywhere. Was there much happening in the middle as far as like Mississauga, Oakville, Port Credit? Was there there's nothing happening there? then. There's nothing happening now. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so that inspired me because you either gave up and you said, this is boring, I'm going to get a job. Or if you're really nuts like me, you go, I got to get out of here. So that involved moving to Hamilton because I couldn't afford Toronto and then moving eventually out of the country just because I had to get, you know, I, I was impatient. Tell us about Hamilton. I live in Hamilton, so I'm always curious about people's... Hamilton's a different beast these days, but 1970s Hamilton was not the place to be, probably. For, well, that's in, when in I moved respects. in my... Right. I moved in 1976, I think, my first band. I couldn't actually physically get in the band, so I became their manager, sound man, light man type guy. But we lived in a condemned house on um, Margaret Street, and it's funny because years later I went back and it's all nice condos and townhouses, but it was literally a condemned house. We had a slumlord named Ford and it was just exactly what you would think, but it was free. Hey, take it. And what was this band you were managing? Uh, that band was called Interchange originally. They were from Burlington and they ended up in Hamilton. Um, then... A couple of guys left that group and a couple of guys came in from another group. That was why they were called Interchange, because I guess, you know, two things interchange like a road. But <laughs> I immediately got into them and I said, no, that's not a cool name. And we became the Specs, S-P-E-C-S. That's a better name. I think so. But it, in those days, everyone thought I was insane. It's 1976. You know, you have to have a cool one, one word name. You don't put a Z in front. But I did. <laughs> And what what did they sound like? Were they like proto-punk or just... No, this was a bar rock? band. This was a bar, bar okay. band. Excellent. So, um, but um, in answer to your question, we had to play four sets a night. So the third set, I was in charge of like telling them what songs to play. And it was all what would be called power pop now. We would fit in perfectly now. It was all Beatles and 
kinks and stuff like that. So that would have been the set when we played where everyone got up and went to the bathroom or turned on the TV. But <laughs> again, I wish there were recordings of that because I guess you could say we're pretty ahead of our time because we're playing, you know, swinging blue jeans, B-sides and stuff in bars in, in the mid-70s. Wow. And then, of course, you get back to Frampton and Aerosmith and whatever for, for the other three sets. But, but that's, um, we'll get into that if you'd like, but that was a major reason why punk rock, per se, came along, because there was a bunch of musicians playing and writing their own material, and you could not play in bars. It was impossible around here. So bar bands, in other words, to make money playing music, you had to play other people's songs, and your job was to sell beer. People had to start their own fanzines and their own clubs and their own distribution things, their own record labels here and elsewhere, only because you couldn't break in any other way. So that's why these little scenes popped up in L.A. and London and New York and Toronto. And this is around the time that Pig Paper started too, Gary? Well, Pig Paper started, I had these charts called, you can still see them or I'll, I'll, I'll send you some JPEGs or JPEGs as I call them. <laughs> I had like a little um, thing called Pig Productions Patented Pop Parade and it was a top 10 listing of what I was playing on my record player. And I would type them up using carbon paper. So I would print three to an eight and a half by 11. I had three and carbon copy them. So I'd get six per time, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd hand them out at school. In high school, this would have been the late 80s, uh, sorry, the, the late 60s. And that became the pig paper, which was correspondence just by mail in those days. And then it became the pig paper proper in 1975 when the Who were coming to town. And my friend John, who became my partner, he was the photographer, art director for the pig paper. He and I lined up overnight in Toronto to get tickets to see The Who and got really bad tickets. This was for the gardens, right? Maple Leaf Gardens. So they were greys, I think they were called. So nosebleed tickets. Mm. And we were really pissed off because we said we lined up all night and we we didn't get any good tickets. We didn't understand, of course, that you know all the good tickets never even went on sale to the public, right? Yeah. Just for industry. So we decided in the spirit of the time that we were going to print up this little thing and handed out at the concert about how, you know, you were being ripped off and, you know, it's not fair in the music business. And, you know, we had just discovered what the music business was like. And we thought, well, no one else knows. And what we found out is everyone else eventually finds out. So um, I'll sort of condense this very long story. But John's day job was he worked in a film distribution company. And, for example, you know, Gary Topp. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, well, he started... Toronto. Right, well, he started um, uh, the 99-cent Roxy, I think it was called, in the Danforth. So he started with Midnight Movies originally. I met Gary Top through John because John worked at this film company where Gary would bring in the prints of his films to repair them before he sent them back, you know, redo the splices, etc. Mm. The offices upstairs from where John worked, had IBM Selectric typewriters, which were state-of-the-art in those days. So John and I decided that we're going to expand this one little one-page thing we're going to hand out at the concert into an actual program, like a pretend program for the Who concert. And we, again, we just got ambitious and no one told us this is a crazy thing to do. We just went ahead and did it. <laughs> but we weren't allowed to be in the office at night, right? So I would sneak in there. We would work overnight in John's boss's office. But of course, that meant the light was turned on. 
John's boss was driving home from something one night, happened to look up, saw a light on upstairs, thought he was being robbed, came up into the room, opened the door, caught us. John immediately thought he was going to be fired. I would have just been sent on the GO train back to poor credit. But his boss walked over and he said, what are you guys doing? And we were laying out our Who pig paper. So there's old pictures of the Who and stuff spread around one of these big layout tables. So John's boss looks at this picture. He points at Pete Townsend and says, oh, I went to art college with that guy. What? So he (laughs) allowed us to do that. He said, okay, you guys shouldn't be doing this. Just let me know when you're going to be up here and get your thing finished and then make sure you give me some copies because I'm going to be seeing Pete after the concert because the who hadn't been to Toronto in years. And um, that's how we ended up. I would assume, you know, that we got some copies into, into their hands of what was the first pig paper. So anyways, we were, we were selling these fake programs for a dollar a piece outside Maple Leaf gardens the night of the show a guy who said he was from MCA Records, which was the Who's label at the time, got all mad and he said, you guys aren't supposed to be doing this and I'm going to sue you and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but, you know, nothing ever happened and we ended up with 70 extra dollars at the end of the night after we paid off the printer and everything. Oh, man. And we said, well, maybe there'll be another cool band come to town. And the next cool band that came through town was the Kinks. This is pre-punk, I guess. You know, I don't like that term. It was just... Do it yourself. That was all this was back in those days. Mm-hmm. But when it came time to, like, for example, now Gary Top has brought the Ramones to town, right? And there's no one else in the area that knows who the Ramones are or wants to talk to them. So Gary had promised Danny Fields, you know, I'll try to get you guys some press when you're in town. And he phoned me, and I was the guy to interview the Ramones, just because no one else wanted to. And Gary had promised Danny that he would try to get them some press. So again, I just fell backwards into this, and one thing led to another. And Pig Paper, according to the wiki page, was Canada's second independently published music magazine. Who? Beat yeah, you guys I thought it was punch? the first, but I thought it was the first, but it turned out to be Denim Delinquent, which I think was out of Ottawa. Yes. Was okay. it from Ottawa? It was. Yeah, he was from Ottawa. Jim, um, right? Jim Parrott. That's it. Yes. Well, oh, he amazing. sent me a letter because he had gotten a copy of that Who Pig Paper somewhere, and he wrote to me. And he said, this is incredible, right? So, but I didn't realize that he had already was doing something as well at the time. And then I think, if I'm not mistaken, he ended up in L.A. because I lost touch with him for, for many years. But anyways, what, he went into my Wikipedia page and he said, I hope you don't mind, but I changed your first independent to second independent. <laughs> and I said, fine. But, you know, was- technically speaking, Jim would have been the, the second, and I would have been the third because it's the Georgia Strait out in Vancouver. Oh, yeah, fair. Which is still publishing, Exactly. Yeah. So Nardwar, you must know Nardwar, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Right, so Nardwar at one point corrected me, and he said, but Gary, the Georgia Strait has been going. I said, you're right, Georgia Strait, <laughs> right. Yours is a much more homegrown DIY sort of fanzine effort. Were you picking up fanzines from elsewhere? Did you see other things happening, like... Eventually, because um, speaking of the kinks, when we did what became Pig Paper 3 and we handed them out at Maple Leaf Gardens, the kinks were playing Buffalo the following night, so we followed them to Buffalo 
And the day after that, they did a record signing at the Record Theater, which is this very huge, cool record store in Buffalo, sort of like a Tower Records. You know, it was Mm. amazing. And they had a little magazine section, and in the magazines was this little fanzine called Flipside, which was 25 cent, and it was based in L.A., <clears throat> and they were covering what became, you know, what became the Go-Go's, what became, well, the Runaways had already, were, were just splitting up. The Go-Go's were getting together. The uh, Jane, I remember Jane Weedland, who was Jane Drano at the time, you know, so we were corresponding. So I was just, we were just trading. So I would send them a copy of the pig paper. They would send me flip sides. And then they said, can you put flip sides on sale in Toronto? And I said, yes, if you can put pig papers on sale on sale in LA. So. And so there was a bit of a network. Of yeah, there was another one publishers. called Boston Groupie News in uh, Boston. There was uh, F Fanzine. Again, that editor I met at a, backstage at a kink show in Buffalo, and then he moved to Brooklyn and started F Fanzine. And I had my own column, which still runs online to this day, called Pig Shit. And that be- was called Pig Shit because the first column on Toronto I wrote for Flipside got so much hate mail and everyone was saying, you know, this guy's full of pig shit. And I said, perfect name for a column. (laughs) So pig shit ended up running in most of those fanzines I was telling you about, you know, and I would, if you see the early pig papers, they're all online now, the internet archive, you can see. That's right. So here's, here's my Boston friend writing the Boston column and I would write the Toronto column for his scene. Not only that, but that's how the musicians themselves, because the band members, I remember Charlotte, from the Go-Go's had just gotten into LA and she wrote me because I had written about the B-Girls and she said, how do you get a girl band together? Mm. So, I mean, this was how DIY everything was in those days because, you know, she had just said, well, how do you do that? I noticed you're from Toronto and there's a a group like I want to put together in Toronto already called the B-Girls. So can you talk to them? Can you help me out? Can you give me some tips? Yeah. So you just, you know, swap phone numbers. How often was the mag coming out? Was it, were you working on it on a regular basis or would it, was it more a matter of, oh, it's been a while, I got to hustle and get a new pig paper out? Well, for a while, because it was, the pig papers, when they first went on sale, go, we'll go back to 1975, when the Who programs, we had some leftovers and John had a friend named Larry who ran this very cool record store on Bay and Bloor, basically, called Round Records. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, if you've got any extras, you know, I'll sell them on consignment. And I said, well, what's on consignment? He said, well, we'll split the money. I'll put them. And they were in my closet, so I said, fine. So he said, but leave me your phone number because I'll put them up for a day or two, but, you know, I can't take the, the, um, the shelf space up on something like this unless there's some demand for it. So give me your phone number and I'll call you in a couple of days and you may have to come and take them out of here. And I said, okay, whatever. He did phone a couple of days later, but he said, I need more. This thing sold immediately. And I said, there are no more. And he said, well, you, you better try to make this a regular thing. And now back to punk rock time by 77, 78, there was the record peddler who were selling, you know, the pig paper regularly. So, I had to try to get it out as mu- as often as possible, and it was roughly every eight to ten weeks for a little while there. But I was doing I couldn't get advertisements, of course, because you know maybe I would put something in for stiff or something like that. But there was no, there's no way I could get advertising from around here. 
For example, my only connection would have been Ralph Alfonso, who's working with the diodes at at CBS, which are out in Scarborough. Mm -hmm. But he had no budget, especially for someone like me. So in answer to your question, I put it out basically whenever I had time and whenever I could afford it. Yeah. But nowadays, it's a moot point. Again, we take it for granted. You just blog something every day if you want. But in those days, you know, I had really had to scramble to get this news out because it was old news two months later. How many copies would you print? Between two and 3,000 in its heyday. Wow. Which would have been around the 9th and 10th. Because now, uh, like Rough Trade in, in London is distributing me. Uh, Manic Panic, which were Tish and Snooky, who was a clothing store on St. Mark's Place in New York. You know, and, and I got connected to them through Debbie and Chris from Blondie. So it just went, you know, I had demand for the magazine. But I, I could have sold many more, but I couldn't afford to print any more. Because, you know, a real magazine, a quote-unquote real magazine, would, you know, sell the back cover and ad, and you'd cover your, your costs. Were you enjoying any other fanzines at the time, like in the late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the ones I mentioned, Flipside, of course. Um, my favorite, though, at the time, they were just starting, was Kicks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Miriam right. and, uh, and Billy. Right. So um, I'm very, I'm still good friends with Miriam to this day, but she was um, putting together what became Kicks Magazine, and that was the gold standard. So for years, that was my favorite fanzine or magazine or whatever. I think there's a Kicks 8 coming out really soon. That's, what I, that's the rumor, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be amazing. Tell me about your association with Simply Saucer. How did that come about? Uh, Simply Saucer came about because um, there was a concert at OTA, I believe it was January of 1977, called 3D. And it was the Dishes, the Diodes, and the Doncasters. And Johnny Pig was there just, you know, as a fan because he had friends at OCA. And the Doncasters, which was the first band on that night, played I'm Not Like Everybody Else, which was like this great Kinks B-side. Mm-hmm. Again, it was like a secret, sort of like code in those days. If you knew what that song was, this was interesting that there's a band from Toronto, our age, playing this song. So there was someone sitting in front of John at the show who said, I love this song. So, of course, John had to tap him on the shoulder going, you know, a friend of mine is putting out a fanzine on the kinks. Would you like to talk to him about it? And that was Edgar Bro. Hmm. So Edgar gave John his phone number. John and I went out one Saturday to this house in um, Hamilton. Can't remember the address, but it, all I remember was it was the only house on that street. So he said it'll be easy to find because it's a white and red brick house on this street. We knocked on the door. No one answered the door. We went inside. We heard a band rehearsing in the basement. Then Edgar came upstairs and said, okay, let's do the interview. And after we did the Kinks interview, which was pig paper number three, I said, so what was that? noise we heard down in the basement. He said, oh, I have a band, and that was Simply Saucer. So again, me being me, I just said, well, where are you guys playing? And when Edgar said, well, we can't play anywhere, we can't get any gigs again, because they played their own material. And I said, well, there's a little scene just starting up in Toronto. Let me see if I can get you guys plugged into that. And that was a show at the Masonic Temple called Rock Shock, and it was Simply Saucer, Teenage Head, 
and I think Johnny Loveson, who was a Toronto guy from New Yorkville scene in the 60s, and he was the headliner. And if you're familiar with the Masonic Temple, that's a big venue, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone nowadays claims they were at that show, but John has the photographs and the contact sheets. There was maybe 30 people there. And there was his friends of the band. And so that's how I met Edgar. <laughs> so I, li I liked his band. And I, was, I had put together the first version of The Loved Ones at the time. We were rehearsing out in Westdale, right across the road from McMaster. Posh Hamilton, yeah. Yeah. Lucky for me, I could sneak across and I pretended I was a med student so I could eat for free at McMaster in the cafeteria. So it was very <laughs> convenient. And um, that was Steve Park, who had just left Teenage Head. Because Teenage Head, when I first saw them, they were opening for Max Webster at the Delta Theater, I think it was called, which would have been the Hamilton equivalent to Gary Topps, you know, 99 Cent Roxy. Hmm. So there was Teenage Head as a five-piece. They were playing, um, you know, Alice Cooper and Stooges and New York Dolls. And I thought, this is cool. And that's how I met Paul Kobach, their manager. So again, everything sort of connected. So I said, yeah, I'm... I'm playing in a band and I'm working with another band and I'm doing a fanzine. And, you know, he gave me a copy of, I guess it was Teenage Head's first demo tape. It was three or four songs. This would have been early 77. So you're managing Simply Saucer in a way? Was, well, it, was there I anything so. official or just kind of... No, no, I was about to say, no, there's no such thing as managers or anything for these bands. Again, it was just I was helping them out. Yeah. And I became their producer, I guess, because... Now I'm getting really ambitious, and I go, well, let's put out a record. I'm getting these independent records from elsewhere in the world through Pig Paper. And I said, why don't we try to do one with you guys? And that became the first Simply Saucer record. Was that the She's the Dog? Uh, She's a Dog, right. 45. Yeah, that was their most commercial number at the time, if there was such a thing for, for Saucer. Uh huh. And we had a plan to do 345s and then an LP, and we went, well, She's a Dog is like the most, you know, accessible, I guess, maybe is the word, yeah, song. So let's put that out. And then and then we were the second, by the time we got to the album, it would have been like the Cyborgs album, which came out years later. Mm -hmm. So they, they had all this cool stuff, but we said we have to try to get a couple of two, three-minute songs for the first 45. The experience of recording that didn't go as you guys had hoped, I think. <laughs> no, we wanted to go into... Um, Grand Avenue, but we couldn't afford it. So we ended up, I don't know how, maybe it was some connection I'd made a couple of years earlier through the specs, probably. A guy had a studio in his, in his basement up on, up on the mountain. And he got mad and he went upstairs. He just didn't understand. And there was me and an intern from Sheridan College. It was left to us to mix the record. We had to do it all in one night. So there you go. Record, mix. Was there a response to that 45? Like, did you manage to get copies out into people's hands? Yes. And like the pig paper, I couldn't afford to press anymore. It was the record of the week in Sounds Magazine, I think it was. Oh, wow. In, um, in the UK. And of course, because I could parlay my pig paper d distribution network to do pig records. So Rough Trade was, was doing the Saucer 45 in England. It was the same thing as the early pig paper. They said, we need more. And I said, there are no more. You know, I can't afford to press more. We had to do a, a corn roast up on, on the mountain, you know, to raise the money to press the 45. <laughs> Different times, eh? Yeah. 
But in a way, you know what, to sound old and, and curmudgeonly, if that's the word, in those, we take it for granted now. It's easy to record something, upload it, and bing, bang, it's done, right? Mm-hmm. In those days, you really had to be serious about what you're doing. You really had to be determined because to raise $1,000 in 1978 was a lot of money. So you really had to, you know, you really believed in what you were doing. So it was harder in those days. And I really, I look back now and, and we were all, me and many, many other people were really, we really worked our asses off to, to get this stuff out, whether it was a fanzine or, or promote a show or whatever. You know, you really had to work hard. Did you end up releasing music from other people, uh, Gary, after that experience? I was, I was planning to, but I just got too busy distributing other people's stuff. So rather than get into licensing per se, which I was originally planning on doing, I just said, you know, I don't know how to do this. Again, I don't have any money. So just send me send me a box of your 45s. I'll send you a box of the Saucer 45s and we'll just, you know, swap. And in all this, you're still making music. So you mentioned your band, The Loved Ones. So there's there's different versions. I know there's a Canadian version and an American version. Can you tell us about the Canadian version first? Yeah, sure. The Canadian version got together through Steve Park, who was, you know, itching to get a new band together because he just left Teenage Head. So he was like, I'll show you guys. So he tried to get his own band together. And the singer in that band ended up being Simon, who used to be in that band Interchange I was telling you about. Okay. So he became the lead singer. I got this Specs guitar player, Roy, in the band. And Richard from Burlington was the drummer and his goal in life was to become the diodes drummer and a few years later he did. That's Richard Citroen who is you know went to England with them so and he's hmm. still around. He records under Lola Duotronic, I think, is one of his um you can, you know, soundcloud them or whatever and hmm. and listen to him. But he was our drummer and there was no one left to play bass, so of course Gary ended up being the bass player. And our first show was opening for Simply Saucer. I rented the YM or YWCA. Steve liked Saucer and Saucer liked Steve. So Steve ended up hanging out with me over at Saucer House. And the next thing I knew, he was in the band. Did you lose him or was he doing double duty? He had to do, you know, Simply Saucer's one or the other. And loved ones, again, we could have played more often, but I didn't have the time. It was only 24 hours in a day. So, uh, you know, I, there was no hard feelings, you know, between him and me and whatever. I said, yeah, go play with Saucer. I love Saucer. I'm working with them, so I'll, I'll still see you. And it's around this time that you went off to L.A. Yeah, so that came, again, being ambitious slash crazy. <laughs> I was noticing, for example, the Simply Saucer record was selling very well in L.A. I had my pen pals there, Greg Shaw. Um, it was my main pen pal who goes way back, even pre-Pig Paper days, because he's one of the original fanzine guys. Absolutely. Who put way the, back, right? Who put the bump and bump and... Mojo Navigator. Mojo Navigator, yeah. Seven. Predates it, yeah. Absolutely. Right. So, so he, he predates Rolling Stone, believe it or not. So he goes way back to like Crawdaddy, back when these things are like two-page broadsides, I guess they were called. That's right. 66, 67. So he goes way back. So... I, of course, you know, wrote Greg Shaw fan letter just because he wrote liner notes to Adele Shannon album I bought. And he wrote back and, you know, just said, okay, well, and again, you know, Greg ended up in Toronto. He ended up working with the B-Girls, which he took those tapes back to L.A., which is why Charlotte 
you know, was, was contacting me because she knew Greg. Anyways, in answer to your question, I wanted to move either to L.A. or to London because that was where the Saucer Records, the Saucer Record and the Pig Papers had the best, you know, response. Mm-hmm. The mark that was my little marketing survey. Well, these they like what I'm doing in these places, and here people don't really seem to care. So I'm going to move to either L.A. or London. And London, you know, I had my pal at Rough Trade, and I Jeremy Gluck, who oh, is right. a, I think also from Ottawa. By now he's in London, putting together what became the Barracudas. That's right. And he said, oh, Gary, you love Jan and Dean. If you ever come to London, I'm putting a band together. You can be in the band. My L.A. connection at the time was Peter Case, who was putting together what became the Plimsolls. That's right. And he was going, no, 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 you should move to L.A. So I couldn't decide. I had to make up my mind. I flipped a coin. It came up in L.A. So I ended up in L.A. in 79. So what was that like? It, it sounds like pretty early on you put together another version of the loved ones when you arrived. Yeah, because when I first went to L.A., I obviously had to go to Rhino Records, which was not a label yet. It was a store. I bought some records, of course, and went up to the counter. And the guy noticed, you know, the house in a boat. So he realized I wasn't from L.A. He said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Canada. He said, oh, one of my favorite bands is from Canada. And I said, well, who would that be? He goes, Simply Saucer. And I went, well, I actually put their record out. He said, oh, you're Gary from the Pig Paper. So guess who that guy was who was working the cash register at Rhino Records that day? Steve Wynn. Uh, Dream Syndicate? Yes. He was putting together Dream Syndicate at the time. So um, I ended up around what became known nowadays as the Paisley Underground scene. I know Susanna Hoffs was around. So all these people were just around putting their bands together. And The Loved Ones was, was one of those bands. Musically, did you guys fit in with that Paisley Underground scene? Well, again, we were more power poppy, and that scene didn't really exist at that point. And, um, you know, Dream Seeker, you know, they're obviously Velvets, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I was always trying to get Simply Saucer down there. I was always begging Edgar, come to L.A., because he would have fit in ideally, and he would have been opening for Dream Syndicate, or he would have ended up in Dream Syndicate, because Steve was such a fan. But, you know, Edgar stayed here, which I guess in retrospect, that was a good thing. And I ended up in L.A., and that ended up as a good thing. What else were you up to in L.A.? Started the pig paper up again, was promoting shows. But I guess my main thing was putting the loved ones together, and we actually got pretty well known down there because there was a little mod scene in Orange County from which came um, Gwen, who ended up in No Doubt. So there are all these kids hanging out. And Carrie, who ended up in Berlin, if you remember, take my breath away, you know, so all these people were around. Right. Actually, speaking of Berlin, uh, they recorded at the same studio in Orange County, the loved ones did, and Geffen Records had some success with the Plimsolls and they were looking to sign. Now we're talking early 80s, so there is a little power pop thing brewing, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it was between the Loved Ones and Berlin for a deal with um, Geffen. But Berlin got the deal because they're more, you know, this is beginning of what became MTV, right? So Yeah, quite slick. And they had some eye candy, right? Terry was she a great singer, but she looked good. She's a lot cuter than me. 
Don't say So they that. got the deal because David Geffen just said, you know, well, we're getting into video too, so, you know. But, you know, Berlin and, you know, they, you wouldn't know from their first album, from that album. And I think that song ended up in Top Gun. Was that the movie? So Sounds right. And the Plimsolls ended up in the Valley Girl movie. So it's, there you go. <laughs> hey, <laughs> two questions, I guess. Where were you guys playing? And you're also a concert promoter. Where were you putting on shows? Well, I ended up down in Orange County, which um, would have been like the Mississauga for L.A., I guess you could say, mm-hmm. because I first ended up in L.A. because I knew a man named David Leaf who was doing a Beach Boys fanzine. David ended up years later managing Brian Wilson, still a very good friend of mine. David now speaks, I should say, teaches and used to speak at UCLA. Hmm. He's very high up a music guy. But back in those days, he was doing a little fanzine on on the Beach Boys. And when I came to L.A., I knew him. And there were two girls from Orange County, from Fountain Valley. And I sent out letters to my subscribers in 1979 saying, I don't know when the next pig paper is going to come out because I'm moving to L.A. I should say I'm going to L.A. I don't you know, I was thinking maybe I'll move there, live there, but, and it turned out I got lucky and I did. But at the time I was just saying, I'm going to LA. These girls, Kathy and Susie, sent me a postcard back going, well, let us know what plane you're on and we'll come and pick you up. And they did. And these were girls right out of rock and roll high school, right? This was exactly that kind of thing. (laughs) So we end up and they didn't know what we looked like. We obviously didn't know what they looked like. But they see these two guys who are obviously from Canada carrying guitars coming off a plane. And they said, Gary, Roy, it's Kathy and Susie. We're here to pick you up. And I went, oh, my God, because I didn't know where we were going to end up. You know, we did. We thought, you know, the L.A. airport is way out in the middle of nowhere, like everything in L.A. is out in the middle of nowhere. Right. Yeah. You need a car. Right. So they we got in the back of their car, put our suitcases in their trunk and they said, so where do you want to live? And we, went, we were there for three weeks. This was a reconnaissance mission. So I said, I don't know. And they said, well, look, we got to get back to school or we're going to get in trouble. You know? So we're driving you back to our high school. You can hang around, and then at 3.30, we'll, we'll find you somewhere to live. So we ended up hanging out at Fountain Valley High School. They get out of school at 3.30. They go, where do you want to live? I like the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. I go by the water. So they said, okay, the nearest beach is Huntington Beach. So that's how I ended up in Huntington Beach. You guys find a place that day? Yeah, we went to the Compass Motel, which was a rock and roll hotel. It's long gone, of course. Yeah. So that was like a a, a flop house where bands stayed. Hmm. Right on the Pacific Coast Highway. You could literally walk across the street and get into the Pacific Ocean. Oh, man. Again, just by accident, because those two girls happened to come to LAX, and they they picked us up. That's amazing. If they had said we live somewhere else, we would have ended up maybe out in the desert, or who knows. And I have to ask, did you participate in any way in the LA hardcore punk scene at the time? Well, that was what was brewing at the time. For example, I remember Motley Crue opening for the Loved Ones once, and they were putting together what became it's sort of a weird thing because van halen had had a hit covering a kink song so there was what yeah became you really got me. that's right right this was that time so we're skipping forward to like 82 83 so 
another little divide is coming. So you either go one direction, which would have been the hardcore scene, which would have been, you know, Dead Kennedys, Flipper, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that came from the germ scene. Again, I met Darby through the flip, through flip side, right? That's heading in one direction. The other direction is more poppy, which became the hair metal band. And they were, you know, nowadays you would never equate pop with those kind of bands. Yeah. But when they were playing, again, they were playing, you know, kinks, like John and Edgar realizing the Doncasters are playing I'm Not Like Everybody Else. Five years later in L.A., if you go to the Whiskey and you hear a band playing You Really Got Me, you go, this is interesting. But the loved ones were far even more poppy. So that scene didn't really exist. I had a renaissance later when during the power pop revival, if you call it that. But now we're talking the 90s. It didn't exist back then. Did you, I, I read that you also were connected with Rodney Bingenheimer, the DJ on K-Rock. Was he playing Loved right. Ones records? Yes. Well, there were no records. There were just cassettes. Cassettes, Remember, right. Remember, we... We never got anything pressed. We were waiting to, you know, we were second in line for the deal at, at Geffen. So we thought, well, you know, remember, I was living illegally in the States, so I couldn't have a job. You know, so I was just getting money however I could. But Rodney, again, I knew from years earlier. He did the Rodney's top 10 in, in flip sides every issue, and he was reading my column. <laughs> so by the time I got there, he was one of the people I sent a postcard to. And said, I'm in L.A. And he said, you know, if you ever have any recordings, you know, I'll play it. He loved the loved ones. You know, so he would play us. And this was when the bangs, before they were the bangles, so there was that little scene. And Rodney is a total pop guy. So I didn't have to explain or apologize for what the loved ones sounded like. He he knew it. He said, oh, I get it. You guys sort of sound like like the searchers. <laughs> and I said, exactly. You got it. You got kicked out of the country at some point. Is that right? As I was saying, I was living illegally. So I I came back here to visit my parents one Christmas, got back on the plane. They wouldn't let me back on the plane. The loved ones had a real manager, not a pretend manager like me. We had a real manager at that point. I phoned him, and he got hold of his lawyer, who phoned me back and said, you don't want to screw around because if you get deported you'll never get back in the country so aren't you anywhere near the border aren't you near buffalo and i said yeah he said uh sneak over the border and buy a ticket and get back here and i'll I'll figure things out Hmm. so i snuck over the border got into buffalo got back to la but um by that point i was putting on concerts house concerts in in Orange County, where I was still living, which was a very well-to-do area. This is not so much Mississauga as it was Oakville. These are very nice houses. We would put on amazing house parties where we would charge $10 at the door, give $5 to whoever's house it was, and we'd keep the other $5. And these house parties, if you've ever seen the movie Clueless, Mm -hmm. okay, that's the kind of environment that this was going on in so a bunch of really rich kids were hiring us to play at their parties we were giving kickbacks to the local police because we were drawing so many people to these shows that we were getting complaints from the neighbors 
Oh, wow. Even though these are big houses with estates and things like this, we were we were drawing six, seven hundred people to these shows in that's, people's houses. That's amazing. So it's, um, in answer to your question, at one point, the police said, we can't cover for you guys anymore. You've you got to try to move these things into like proper venues because we've given you guys a break, but we can't. In other words, I was causing a lot of trouble. So the lawyer, the loved one's lawyer said, you better, volu- you better just get out of the country because things are heating up here. Yeah. I wasn't technically doing anything illegal per se, but I was really pushing towards that direction. <laughs> and you saw it coming then. Thank you. Yeah. So I ended up in Vancouver, which is the nearest Canadian city, and ended up in another band and got things going there. So, How long were you there? Until I could afford to get back out here. So I night managed a 7-Eleven, hey. which worked out cool because I could actually hold auditions. That's how I was getting things together there because I was using their phone because no one's in 7-Eleven at 3.30 in the morning. So I could, and musicians are still up, right? <laughs> so I go, come by the uh, 7-Eleven in the West End and, um, you know, look for the guy behind the counter to be me and we'll, we'll talk. Bring your guitar. <laughs> so that's how I was auditioning people for the, the Vancouver version of the loved ones. And so how long did the Vancouver version of the loved ones exist? Well, the, that would have been about a year. I was also in a band called Fun With Numbers at the time because the guy who came to audition for me wanted me to get into his band so hmm. I could be in both. I could do both. As soon as I had enough money to get back to um, Mississauga, I left the 7-Eleven and left Vancouver. So now I'm back here. It would have been 1984, 83, 84. And did you put another group together at the time? Well, this leads to another interesting story, I guess. <laughs> I put an ad in the Toronto Daily Star, I guess it would have been, looking for musicians, but my prerequisite for all of my loved ones was you have to be able to sing as well. Going back to Brian Wilson days, mm-hmm. you know, I was into harmony, three, four-part harmonies. This guy responds to that ad and goes, um, could you come out and see me? I run an agency and a management company in Scarborough. So I went out there, and he was putting together a band which became known as Endless Summer. And he said, the real reason I have you out here is I want to hire you to be a vocal coach. I'm putting a band together, and I noticed the word Beach Boys in your ad, and maybe you would be interested. And I went, well, this is better than working at the Toronto 7-Eleven. So, yeah, sure, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll vocal coach you guys. Of course, I end up in the band because... He was going, we have to play this showcase for this agency. Can you just be in the band, can, you know, just for these gigs so I can try to get... But I ended up in that band for almost five years. And that was, first of all, it was a very fun band because we weren't playing bars. We were playing outdoor beach parties during the summers and indoor ski parties during the winters. And we were making a lot of money, like flying to the gigs we were sponsored by Hawaiian Tropic and Molson's and all these things. So um, there's worse things you can do for you know on the weekends and play Beach Boys music, and that gave me enough time during the rest of the week to buy a Porta studio and build a little studio in the basement and start writing and recording my own demos and starting the pig paper up again. 
And were you guys covering just the hits of the Beach Boys or the different The Beach eras? Boys were an authorized, through the Beach Boys, Brother BRI, Brother Records Incorporated, was the Beach Boys holding company. And to use their name on our advertisements, we had to you know, send them a videotape every six months of our show so that we weren't, you know, besmirching their brand name, basically. And they would extend the license, right, for another six months. So we were the authorized for Canada. And and, um, now that I remember, we were meeting all of these agents and things who wanted to book us on cruise ships and put us into Vegas, which would have been perfect, but we weren't allowed to because part of our deal with BRI was we could only perform within Canada. Okay. Otherwise, we're taking work away from in those days mike love had a side band called mike loves endless summer beach band so he didn't for example he didn't want us playing in vegas were you a specific beach boy in the band or did it not work quite that way um yep i was al jardine so i was gary jardine respect he's the well-adjusted nice one i guess right he always said i'm not tainted by the wilson blood yeah yeah So I had a great time in those years, and um, um, that led me another one thing always leads to another. We were booked by the agency, they were called back then, which is a huge booking company out of Toronto. Also, so was Teenage Head at this point. So Teenage Head were playing on the same circuit as Endless Summer. I was still in touch with Gord and Steve because I knew them from way back in the day, but now they had Dave Rave as their lead vocalist. So that leads into how I ended up producing him in 1988-89, and that's how I ended up in New York City. And Dave Rave is a Hamilton guy, right? He's Absolutely. He was the original singer when Frankie was on drums. Okay. We're going way back to like 72, 73. And so how did that production work come about? And then tell us about the Dave Rave conspiracy. Okay. You see how everything logically, one thing leads to another? I love how smooth this is. <laughs> it's, and we're actually almost chronological, too. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I thought this might be all over the place, but this, this has worked out pretty well. You may not need to do too much editing here. It's sort of, it's <laughs> sort of working. <laughs> okay, Dave Rave. Um, he knows about Endless Summer. I know about Teenage Head. In those days, I'm talking mid-80s, because we're playing the same circuit. We're playing the same venues. Teenage Head and... Beach Boys cover band, there's really not that much difference when you get down to it because Teenage Head were playing Hawaii, for example. That's one of their big numbers. We played that song, too, in the -hmm. the Beach Boys thing. So I have a friend in New York City who I met in Toronto. We met at a wedding, I believe it was. She went back to New York and said, if you're ever in New York, call me. She was a a student at NYU. I would visit her every time I was in New York City. Every time I had a few days off, I'd go down there and buy records and, you know, whatever, go to New York. I love New York. So one, and she lived in the dorm rooms at NYU. So to get in the dorm rooms, even in those days, you had to be buzzed in. There was security. So I'm up in her room and I'm leaving that later that evening to fly back to Toronto. And she goes, oh, well, I have a, another guy from Canada coming in. I'm interviewing him this evening. So he buzzes, and I'm going down to see who this guy is and say hello as I go to the airport. He just got into town. That was Dave Rave. Wow. So we already know each other. And Dave was coming into town to try to get teenage head bookings. And she also was booking teenage head around New York at the time. So Dave and I go 
you know, hey, Dave, hey, Gary, you know, whatever. And he goes, I got to come and see Endless Summer. He goes, well, you'd better hurry because I'm, I'm leaving them at the end of the year. So conveniently, we were playing Burlington or something at a huge Christmas, corporate Christmas party. Dave shows up. You know, we get, we reconnect, we're hanging out. And um, he goes, you know, I'm thinking of leaving Teenage Head. And I said, well, I've just left Endless Summer. And he had all these unrecorded songs, which were not suitable for Teenage Head. And I was just getting my stuff together in my little basement, my little four-track basement here in Mississauga. So Dave gave me a cassette of a song called Farmer Needs Rain, just a live guitar vocal boombox cassette. Hmm. I dumped that into my Porta studio. I overdubbed vocals and keyboards and bass guitars and things and gave it back to him. And he loved it. And he said, what are you doing Sunday morning? I said, nothing. He goes, okay, well, we're going into Grand Avenue to record it. So I said, well, what are we doing? He goes, well, we're going to do it. We, you did it in your Porta studio, but we got 24 tracks instead of four. And I said, well, who's going to produce it? And he said, you are. <laughs> now, Grand Avenue, briefly, was sort of like a secret club. You had to sort of, it wasn't really open to the public. You know, you got in there if you knew someone and you could get in. Mm-hmm. And Dave knew Dan from way back, and Dave was... Dan was had actually done some work on the Electric Guitar album, which was Teenage Head's album that Dave was the lead vocalist on, and that was cut at Grand Avenue. So if you knew someone, you could get in there. So my only stipulation was, you have to, you know, don't let them know you've never produced anything before. You know, and this was Just the engineer, right. And what is a producer? It's basically, I think, it's just you have a sound in your head and you have an engineer and you get it on tape. The engineer was John Oliveira, who at the time had just done the Trinity sessions for the Cowboy Junkies. Oh, wow. So he didn't know I wasn't a producer. So he's my engineer. And we're recording Farmer Needs Rain on 24-track. So we come back the following Sunday to do overdubs, and I noticed there's some other people in the booth and I'm sort of wary and I asked Dave I go who are those other people sort of sitting watching us and Dave goes I don't know they're friends of John's and so I said John are these your friends I don't mind but I'm just wondering and they go oh they want to watch you work (laughs) no pressure eh but you see I didn't know the only my only guide is being a quote-unquote producer of a 24-track session in a real studio was listening to session tapes from back in the day, like Brian Wilson, Phil Spector. Those guys were recording off the floor, right? Yeah. So it was basically, all you had to know is you had to be able to hear the finished record in your head, and then you just placed the mics accordingly, and you recorded live off the floor. Now, I only was doing that at Grant because I didn't know any, I didn't know any other way to do it. John Oliveira was going, this is exactly what I'm doing with the cowboy junkies. Mm-hmm. So here's another guy who's recording off the floor. But the only reason I'm doing it is because not any grand plan. It's just I, I didn't know any other way. I was just sort of mimicking what Specter and Wilson were doing on these cassettes I had of, you know, bootlegs of their recording sessions. Like, you know, trumpet player, lean into your mic during the, you know, bars 48 through 56. That mm-hmm. was how you mixed. It was mic placement and where you were in the room. So I'm doing this in Grand Avenue, and I guess I'm a producer now. <laughs> but how I ended up with Dave 
full time was at the end of Farmer Needs Rain, after we mix it, I go to Dave, got any other songs? And he gave me three 90-minute cassettes full of years' worth of songs, which he had been writing, stockpiling, which, of course, were not suitable for Teenage Head. So he had his Teenage Head songs, and he had all these other songs. And those became the Valentino's Pirates album, which, um, if you Google that, you'll find out that was actually released in Russia. Hmm. How did that work? First, well, here's another story. <laughs> Bring it on. Okay. Dave and I are shopping tapes at the New Music Seminar in New York City. Right? We have a, ca- a cassette of about six or seven songs now, which are professionally recorded in Grand Avenue. So we can go, yeah, they, we just cut these tracks at Dan Lanois' studio. He just fresh off U2. He's doing Dylan at the time, so we can drop his name. And he didn't mind. He actually ended up helping us out later. So he said, yeah, yeah, you know, throw my name around. You know, tr- get you guys, get a deal. So we're in New York, staying at the Hotel Edison in Midtown. I'd left the phone number there with my mother in case of emergency. They put a call through. And I went, someone must have died because no one else knows Dave and I are here. And it was my old, old friend, another Dave, saying, it's funny that you happen to be in New York. I just talked to your mother because I have a friend who's trying to sublet an apartment on the Upper East Side for three months. And I couldn't take it. So do you know anyone who who would be interested in illegally subletting in New York? (laughs) <laughs> so I said, just a second. So Dave is sitting on the bed opposite me in the room in the, in the Edison. And I go, hey, Dave, you want to move to New York? And he said, when? And I asked the other David on the phone, when? He said, this is July. And he said, Labor Day. So on September 11th, 1989, Dave and I moved to New York City for three months, which turned into another three months. So we ended up and we just had to keep a low profile because, again, it was a legal sublet. And a friend of David's just said, if you keep a low profile and just do your thing, you've got a free furnished apartment, in, not free, I should say, but next to free furnished apartment in, in New York. So again, we weren't planning on moving to New York. Dave now has to really leave Teenage Head because he's moving to New York. And I've already left Endless Summer, so I'm free as a bird. So off we go to New York. So we start playing open mics, just Dave and I in the village. And people start coming up to us because the grass is always greener. We're old news up here, right? But down in New York, we're these two weird Canadians. <laughs> so, for example, that's how Billy Ficka from television ended up being our drummer. It just all got together just because people are coming and we're living in New York and we're, we're hustling. We're trying to get a band together. That's amazing. In answer to your question about how did the record come out in, in Russia, one of the stores on 14th Street that we went to, to to hunt for records. This was a shop called Kismet, which had really cool, weird, old, used records. But we noticed there's a lot of Russian records in here. The guy behind the counter worked for Melodia Records, which is the state-owned Russian label, which explained why there were so many Russian used Russian records in this store on 14th Street in New York. So, again, Gary being Gary and shooting his mouth off, <laughs> I go, well, I'm in a band, too, and here's my friend Dave, and why don't you put you know, our record out on Melodia? <laughs> and Dave and I are laughing, but this man named Rudolph, he doesn't laugh. He goes, give me your phone number. 
So now the record is finished. Our next visit to New York, we're down there, and we can give him a finished tape. And there's contracts involved. So I go, well, this is getting interesting. So Dave calls his lawyer up and goes, well, the ruble is worthless over here, so why don't you figure out some other way? Mm-hmm. You know, get some clothes or something off that you can sell and make your money that way. Launder the money and make some money. <laughs> because, again, we're living illegally in New York. Speaking of L.A., now Dave and I are living illegally in New York City. I see a pattern here. <laughs> there you go. So that record ends up coming out in Russia. But in exchange, Paul McCartney had just put out his Russian album, which is worth a lot of money if you can get original Russian pressing. So he said, for every Valentino's pirate album that you press in Russia, instead of money, just send us a Paul McCartney album. So when they would press 500 Valentino's pirates for Dave, we would get a shipment by boat in Brooklyn, and a big wooden box would come with 500 copies of the McCartney album, which we could put around the village on consignment. And these were very valuable Russian pressings of the McCartney album, which was available only in Russia. So that's how we ended up, and people were going like, you know, we need more, we need more, great. Now we have an excuse to press more Valentino's Pirates records. But that came to an end when the Soviet Empire came to an end, and that was the end of that. And you guys just did that one album with Melodia. Yes, which was recently reissued. I'll send you the linkage on that. It's now a cult item record. And it was just reissued by um, Hanky Panky in, in Spain uh, in a box set with vinyl and a CD with an extra CD of, of bonus tracks from those three 90-minute cassettes. I was telling you about from 89. They're digitized and they're on this CD now. Wow. And did you guys keep the Dave Rave conspiracy going when you came back to Canada? Dave had to come back. Actually, it was quite similar to what happened to me with the loved ones in L.A. Dave had to come back to Canada. But I ended up living in, in, I actually got my green card. I said, I got to stay here because I'm getting busy producing other people. Again, people don't know I'm not really a producer. So Mm -hmm. I'm now producing New York bands. So I said, I can't go back. Because Dave could always come back here and pick up gigs with Teenage Head or whatever. And he would have a Canadian version of the Dave Ray Conspiracy. So he was doing fine. And I would come back here to record him, right? Mm-hmm. There was another, a second conspiracy album done at Grand Avenue up here, which I came back to to produce. But I sort of had to stay in New York because I was going through my, you know, legal process to get my green card. Who are some of the bands and performers you're producing? The main act I was producing then, which you may remember, uh, the Cheapskates, who used to play up here all the time. Do you mm. know Dave from uh, What Wave magazine? Yes, Lindsay Hutton had told me about him. Yes, yes. Lindsay, right. That's another fanzine I forgot to mention, one of my favorite fanzines, right? Lindsay, yeah, amazing. That brings back a whole not, a lot of other really good old memories. Anyway, so, yes, uh, Dave would book the cheapskates up here, and they their lead guy, like their Dave Rave, was a guy named Shane, Shane Faubert. He had a... Um, and offered to do a solo album with his label, which was in Germany, I think it was based, Music Maniac. So I um, ended up producing him. That was the main guy I was producing. And I had another band of my own called the Ghost Rockets. And again, um, 
I think I was mentioning earlier about alternative country. That was that band. Mm -hmm. I understand you worked with Pat Boone at some point. Was this in New York? Oh, Pat Boone, right. Um, Okay, the girl I was telling you about who used to book um, Teenage Head in New York and later Dave and I solo. Yeah. She wrote for Goldmine magazine. That was like a record collecting magazine. I think it's still going online. It's been around since the 70s. So she was a writer, interviewer for them, and she knew about me through Goldmine. That's how I con- that would have been, I would assume, how I connected with her. I thought it was that wedding, but that's how I physically saw her. But she knew me f- through Goldmine. She introduced me to a guy named Pruitt Rose. Pruitt Rose was this legendary guy, if you know the Nugget series or the Back from the Grave series. Oh, yeah, he, absolutely. He was like this guy who used to produce these amazing garage records back in the 60s. By the mid-80s, 20 years later, when I meet him, he's starting a label, and he has two people on his label at this point. He has Hyapatia Lee, who is a porn actress, and he has Pat Boone. Huh. So I meet uh, Pruitt, and he knows about me as well, vaguely, and I learned about him. So he said, well, you know, I'll keep in touch. And I go, well, I'm leaving my band at the end of the year, so I'm going to have some spare time. He goes, well, next time in New York, come out and stay at my place out in Long Island. But he phones me instead, and he goes, um, what's going on with your Endless Summer group? I said, well, me and the singer have just quit. He goes, good, I need two singers. I'm recording Pat Boone in Nashville. You guys want to come? And I go, of course. He goes, okay, I'll drive up, I'll get you guys, I'll take you guys to Nashville, and I'll record So that's how I met Pat Boone. And Pat Boone, in the proverbial nutshell, there's the character of Pat Boone we know of, Mm -hmm. and then there's the real Pat Boone. And the real Pat Boone is the coolest guy, which would be why he ended up on a label alongside a porn actress. (laughs) And if you want to go back to the 60s, back to Pruitt's day, you know the band The Leaves? Uh, The Leaves? Yeah. Okay, well, guess who got them their record deal? Yes, Pat Boone was their manager. Really? Back in the 60s. No way. Yeah, so Pat has a cool side to him. He's got taste. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, he's just any, and he was like, uh, would have been with Stephen Leckie, Nazi Dog. I mean, he was one of the best people I knew who could go in and out of character instantly. So we're recording in Nashville. Duck Dunn is the bass player. Elvis's guy whose name escapes me is the drummer. So we're around really cool people. And Pat, I could see him literally go in and out of character because with me he and Pruitt, he says Pat Boone. When other people come into the room, he's the Pat Boone, the public Pat Boone, right? Mm-hmm. Who's this dumb yokel, like, you know, white buck guy. And then there's this other guy who could drink anyone under the table. He's an amazing character. But anyways, long story to your short question, that's how I ended up with Pat Boone, because Pruitt just said, you know, you've got four days, I'll drive you and your friend TJ from Endless Summer, and you can sing on Pat's record. What was that experience like, musically? How Was it a, was it a decent fit or a bit of a stretch? No, it's fine. You'll read all about it. I'll send you the link. It's like a, Pat was the funniest guy. He's hysterical. He is like a cool guy. He should come to Hamilton. He should 
<laughs> he could drink any of these people under the table. He is a Hamilton guy. So there is what I'm saying. There's the Hamilton Pat Boone and there's the Nashville Pat Boone. So he could he could flick between the two. And it reminded me of like Stephen Leckie was the first guy I met who could do that back in punk rock days. He's he the Viltones. Uh, he's the Viltones yeah, guy. Yeah, he could be Nazi dog and he turns into that character. And I became very good friends with him. We bonded over Elvis Presley. Hmm. When the day that Elvis died, that's in the middle of the summer of hate, right? That's 77. So, you know, Nazi dog goes, who the fuck cares about Elvis? We're glad he's dead. And then he comes up and he goes, we got to hang out later and talk about Elvis. You know, I'm really, <laughs> really down about this. So he had a little wake for Elvis in his in his little room. Thanks to Gary for sharing his story and to you for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks with more content from the world of music criticism and fanzine culture. Take care and see you then.